Uh, Acts chapter 5, we've been in the book of Acts now for about a year, or maybe we started the beginning of this year, and here we are in chapter 5, and the, the title for the sermon this morning is The Impact of the Church of Acts. We're simply going to talk about the impact of the Church of Acts here in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Here's what Luke writes here, starting in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the joy of singing some of these songs this morning that just stir our hearts about your beauty and your majesty. Thank you for the reading of the word here in Acts 5 as we read the divine, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word And I pray that this very day that you would open up our hearts so that we could hear, that you would speak to us through the scripture in such a way that would bring change in our hearts and lives, that we would want to leave different than we came in, that we would have a greater love for you and your glory, that we would walk in purity and in holiness, that you would light a fire in our hearts in a way that would magnify the beauty of the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, many people understand the church as a building. And as we were building this building over the last year and a half, we spent a lot of time talking about the church is not a building. It's not about bricks and mortar. It's about people created in the image of God who've been reborn in the person of Jesus Christ And it's the people that make the church what it really is, people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word church is translated from that Greek word ekklesia, which is defined as an assembly or as a gathering. In the New Testament, ekklesia specifically refers to the called out ones. They've been called out of darkness and they've been called into light. And so we see that the root meaning of church is not that of a physical building, but that of God's people. The church is the body of Christ, of which he himself is the head. Ephesians chapter 1, 22 through 23 tells us just that. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In the body of Christ is made up of all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2 all the way up until Christ's return. I also want to make sure that you understand that the New Testament also teaches about the church in two ways. There is the universal church and there is the local church. The universal church consists of everyone, everywhere, who was called out of darkness into light and who's been placed into the kingdom of God. They're true Christians. Universal, not in the sense of anybody who attends any church in the world, but they're universal in the sense of anyone who trusts Christ, who's truly born again. 
Everyone who has repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. Everyone who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says it this way, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so that verse is referring to the universal church, that we're all one together in Christ. And anyone who believes is a part of that body of Christ. It doesn't matter about your ethnicity. It doesn't matter about your culture. It doesn't matter about your gender. It doesn't matter about your upbringing. It doesn't matter about your education or your job. Anybody who has taken a drink from the living water of the well of Christ is now born again and has received salvation through faith, and you're part of that universal church. Now, there's also the local church, and the local church is referring to those local assemblies of believers who meet together for worship in any given area. Our church is Placerita Bible Church. We are a local church, and we see examples of local churches in the scripture as well, like in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And so he's talking about how he's writing that book of Galatians to various churches, plural, not just one church, so he's not talking to just one lump group of all the believers in Galatia, but to the churches, the various respective churches that existed in the area of Galatia. And we understand throughout the Bible, there's lots of, uh, of, of attention that's paid to what the ecclesiology or what the church is supposed to be about. Uh, there's, supposed to be a, there's supposed to be elders that would help provide spiritual oversight to a local church. There to be deacons who also would serve in a local church. A church would practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table. A church would practice church discipline. All of this we see in the New Testament, and we read about it in the book of, of Acts and throughout the other epistles. We read about Antioch, which is where they were first called Christians. We read about and are familiar with the church of Ephesus, the church of Philippi, the church of Colossae, of course, the seven churches of Revelation. And so what is the church? The church is not a building or a denomination. According to the Bible, the church is the body of Christ. And all those who are in Christ are part of that universal church. And the universal church meets together in local congregations with a common cause and a common purpose. And that's really all leading up to my next question, which is this. What is the purpose of the church? Why are we here? What is the purpose of the church? And, and, and what I mean by that is when God saves you as a sinner and you become part of Christ's universal church, you're part of his body, why doesn't he just take you straight to heaven then? Could save us a lot of heartache. Could save us a lot of pain. I mean, I, I'm ready to go to heaven. I don't know about you. One of, the, one of the silver linings in this whole COVID thing is I'm totally ready. If I wasn't ready before, I'm like, let's go. Right, let's get to heaven. I'm done with this earth. Why didn't God just save us and take us instantly to heaven? And my answer to that question would simply be because he wants you to make an impact. He wants you, believer, to make an impact in this world. He wants you to be both evangelistic and to be involved in discipleship. And if the church wasn't here, then that wouldn't be happening. I mean, can you imagine a world with no Christians? Can you imagine a world with no faith? 
Can you imagine a world with no gatherings on Sunday morning? Can you imagine a world with no worship, with no gospel ministry, with no reaching out to make a difference in the world? God has left us here to make an impact. We are to be involved in our community. We are to be involved with one another, practicing the one another's. We're to be involved in calling sinners to faith in Christ and in teaching saints to walk in accordance with the calling to which they've been called. We are here to serve Christ by practicing all of those one another's in such a way that the world will know that we are Christians by our love. And the Church of Acts understood that And they did that as well as, if not better than, any other church that we've ever seen since. And this morning, I simply want us to look at four characteristics of the Church of Acts that we'll see here in our verses 12 through 16 so that we can learn to maybe walk in some of these same ways. Number one, this was a powerful church. The Church of Acts, it was a powerful church. Again, look at verse 12 where we read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. First point I want to make, if you're taking notes, I've said it's a powerful church, but under that main heading is this, it's pursuing purity. This is a powerful church because it's a church that's pursuing purity. We're right here in verse 12. You might have missed the sermon on verses 1 through 11, where we looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how they lied in church. And when they lied to the Holy Spirit in church, it cost them their lives. God was interested in purifying his church, this church of Acts. And the early church was known to help the needy, The early church was often known to sell houses or lands and bring the proceeds to be used at the apostles' discretion. Such was the case at the end of Acts 4. If you'll glance back at the last couple of verses, it talked about how Barnabas, who was known as the son of encouragement, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it down at the apostles' feet. And so in the beginning of Acts chapter 5, apparently Ananias and Sapphira liked what he did. And they might have even liked the attention that he must have gotten from selling a piece of property and bringing it in. And so they did the same thing. And yet the scripture tells us that they held back a portion of that money that they made from selling the land and they kept it from themselves. But when they were asked about it, they acted as if they brought it all. And so Peter spoke to them and he confronted them and he said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to man, but to God. You know what happened next. Ananias fell down and he died. And the exact same thing happened to his wife three hours later. She came in. Peter said, did you sell the property for such and such? She said, yes, I did. He said, the men who just buried your husband, their footsteps, we can hear they're coming back. And she fell as well. Acts 5 verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. This is a lesson for us this morning that you cannot hide anything from God. You may be hiding secrets from your fellow man, but you cannot hide any secrets from God. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, and no creature 
is hidden from his sight, but we all are, are, we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Ananias and Sapphira had become proud. They presumed that they could lie to God and get away with it. But you know what? God wants a pure church. He wants a holy church. He wants a church that will stand for the truth and live in the truth. And God wants us as part of his body to confront one another in love. And God wants to rid the church of hypocrites and of unrepentant sinners and of false teachers. He wants it so bad that Jesus, his only son, is the one who gave us clear instruction about what church discipline is all about. You're familiar with Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a tax collector or as a Gentile. And the whole point, by the way, of Jesus giving us those four steps of church discipline is that we love that individual too much to let them live in sin and dishonor the name of Christ and still have normal, regular fellowship with the body. And we love them so much that Jesus said, you gotta be willing to leave the 99 and you go find that one sheep that's in the ditch and you pick them up and you help them come back. And so the whole point of church discipline is church restoration. We desire so bad that, that you would be restored in a right relationship with Christ and with his church that we're gonna come after you in love because we wanna see you right with the Lord and we wanna see you right with each other. We understand that bad company corrupts good morals. We wanna be a church that would pursue that bad company and weed that out or help them come to a place of repentance. I remember the first time that I ever personally was involved in a church discipline case. I was serving as a youth pastor in Texas, just outside of Houston. I'd been there, I don't know, maybe, maybe a couple of months and at one of our elder meetings, we would have our elder meetings at 6 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. And at one elder meeting, everybody was talking about this one young man who had been a part of the youth group, who was now in the college young adult group, who was still kind of serving a little bit with the youth group. And they were saying this young man was in ongoing, unrepentant sin. And it had to do with drugs. This young man had struggled with drugs in his teenage years and he was not coming to church. He wasn't returning phone calls of those who loved him and knew him. And so uh, this one elder says, we gotta go get him. And I remember he looked at me and he said, he said, Adam, are you ready? And I'm like, ready for what? And he's like, we're gonna get, as soon as we're done with this meeting, you and I, we're gonna drive over to his house. I know where this young man lives and we're gonna bang on that door and we're gonna pursue him in love. And I'm like, all right, I'm ready. Let's do it, man. I'm in Texas now. These people don't mess around. I'm like, do we have a gun? You know, you know we going with gun? Are we, like, what, what's going on? So as soon as the elder meeting was over, I, drop in, I jump in his truck. We drive over to this young man's house. And sure enough, we saw his car parked in the driveway. We knew he was there. And we start, he comes up and we bang on the door. There's no answer. And so I'm thinking like, okay, well, you know, we'll come again some other time. And this elder was like, he started banging on the door even harder. And we, I'm serious, he banged on that door for at least two or three minutes and just kept banging and kept banging. And finally, the door opened up. This young man, who was potentially having a hangover, who looked pretty rough, was just sitting there and he's like, oh, it's you guys. 
And he just, this elder just walked right in. He opened the door. Hey, good to see you. He came over and he said, get down on your knees. And I'm like, man, I like this Texas style. This is, pretty, this is, this is how we do it. So he's like, get down on your knees. We're going to pray until God shows up and convicts you of your sin. And you know, that's what we did. We just came in, we got down our knees, and we just prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And did you know that within a few, uh, you know, maybe within a few days, I mean, right there at that point, this young man listened, his heart seemed to be softened. We followed up with him over the next few days. And that young man repented. And he's now actually serving as a youth pastor in the church. And not that same church, but another church. And it's just like, look at the power of God of how God works through solid, loving, but firm church discipline. And I'm just saying, the point is to restore that young man. We never went over there to say, hey, we're gonna kick you out, we don't like you anymore, and you're in, say, get out of here. Now, we would have moved forward with step three and four if it was necessary, but the goal was always, we wanna restore you. We love you too much to let you walk away from the Lord. And you might think that if a church follows a strict adherence to church discipline, that it will make people not wanna come to that church. And I I have found that just the opposite is true. Believers who are really growing in their spirituality typically want to be a part of a church like that because they know that church isn't playing. And they're like, man, sign me up. I like that idea. And it's usually the weak Christian or the Christian who's not serious about their understanding of Scripture or the Christian who's antinomian, meaning they don't really wanna pay attention to God's law or follow God's law because they always think that's legalism. They're like, I don't wanna be in a church like that. Everybody needs a little room. And it's like, it's interesting to see that unbelievers that are not growing in their, or or believers who are not growing in their faith don't wanna be in a church because they feel like it's judgmental or they feel like that it's being a cult. First Corinthians 5, four through seven says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. So here's another church discipline story of a man who was in, the, in, in sexual sin. And this is what uh, Paul says to the church of Corinth, you to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the whole point is always like, hey, we confront and we're gonna maybe push to step three or four if needed, but the point is so that this man would be saved on the day of the Lord. And so as we look at this church of Acts, we're saying it's a powerful church because it's a pure church because God did the first church discipline. And he chose to do it his way, which was to bring his holy judgment, and God can do whatever he wants, right? It's not your place or my place to say, well, God shouldn't have killed Ananias and Sapphira. You understand we all deserve to be killed. We all deserve because of our sin. The wages of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. He's gracious and merciful that for one moment that he would allow us to take another breath. And the fact that God did what he did, you would think that, well, maybe this church now is going to be, you know, people are going to be not wanting to be a part of it. They're not going to want to be there. But this church now is experiencing, in verse 12, incredible power. It's it's experiencing incredible power because what's happening, there are signs and wonders that were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. There's purity and then there's power. The church is purified of its sin and then the power of God continues to use this local body in amazing ways. And your next blank says, they're now performing signs and wonders. They're performing signs and wonders. God gave the apostles power to perform great miracles. 
And we see that even when Jesus was still alive in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus tells his apostles, the disciples, to do this. Matthew 10, verse 8, he says, I want you to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, you may, uh, you received without paying, now give without pay. So he's like, hey, you do what you do as unto the Lord. These are the spiritual works God's called you to do that I'm calling you to do, Christ himself. And after this, we read in Luke chapter 10, verse one, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And then later in that same chapter of Luke 10, as he sent out the 72, so we see the 12, now we see the 72. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the, and, and, and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And so we see Jesus had already instilled in his apostles a special power, a special gift, a special opportunity for them to do the same miracles that Christ himself was doing. Mark chapter 6, verses 12 through 13 also records how the 12 apostles were performing many miracles. It says, so they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So we see here that this is an incredible time in the early church where God has given this special power to the apostles and to some of their close associates who are doing many, according to Acts 5.12, they're doing many signs and wonders. And while it is true that some of the ordinary members of the church exercise miraculous powers, it was primarily the apostles who did the miracles. And these signs and these wonders were God's way of authenticating their ministry. The fact that miracles were done by the apostles helps validate their ministry as we see this in Romans chapter 15. Turn there with me if you will. We're saying that these miracles, the point and the purpose of these mighty miracles that we're seeing continue through the book of Acts, which by the way ought to get us really excited Ought to get us really fired up to see, man, this is awesome to see what God's doing because sometimes people are so quick to point to the fact that they're cessationists that somehow they forget to glory in the incredible, miraculous nature of the early church. We ought to be celebrating and be like, man, that is unbelievable. Look at what God was doing through these ordinary men who he's called to himself and that this validates their ministry. Romans chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So he's saying from Jerusalem and from beyond, he's seen that these apostles are doing these incredible works. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Again, Paul says here, so he's saying the power of the signs are accompanying those who are going to preach the gospel, namely the apostles. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, it says this, 
the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. The signs of a true apostle, meaning these miracles, the signs and wonders of the healing and casting out the demons, the signs of a true apostle were being performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And then we read, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So we see again that Christ distributed these special gifts of signs and wonders and various miracles according to his will, and it was to those who were declaring it that they were first, uh, it was declared at first by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard. And so we see the passing again of Christ to the apostles. God determined to unleash special signs and wonders at special times throughout biblical history. At the beginning of the age of the law, Moses performed great signs and wonders with the book of Exodus. You have the 10 plagues of Egypt, right? Elijah and Elisha were miracle workers at the beginning of the great era of the prophets. Jesus and the apostles performed signs and wonders when the gospel age was inaugurated. And each time that God opened a, a new door and a new part of history, a new part of biblical progression, He's calling attention to it, and he's calling attention to it by these wonders and these signs and these miracles. It was God's way of saying, follow these leaders, because I have sent them, I have empowered them, and my revelation comes through their words as well as through their works. So that's what God was doing. He was giving them the power to do it so they would listen to their message. Bottom line, the fact that these undeniable signs and wonders were still being done in Acts chapter 5, performed by these apostles of Christ, bears witness to the gospel. It bears witness to their authenticity. It bears witness to Christ did this, we did this with Christ, Christ is now gone, but we're still doing this, and we're doing it for a purpose and a reason, and the reason is, is that it would all point to Christ. That's the whole point. It's authenticating their ministry because their ministry is more than signs and wonders. Their ministry has a message, and the message is Jesus lives. He's been raised from the dead. And he is alive and well working in his church. And every time you and I walk in obedience and perform the good works that God has called us to do, it points to the gospel as well. You may be sitting out there and you're like, well, I've never done a miracle, so I guess I'm not really authenticated. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That was our authentication in that period of time of the Pentecost and in the book of Acts, your authentication is to bear good fruit. And as you walk in obedience and people see your life measure up to the Lord Jesus Christ, they say, ah, that's real faith. That's real faith. That's incredible that the obedience they're walking in shows me that Christ is real. Just like the signs and the wonders of the apostles pointed to Christ, the acts of obedience that you do today point to Christ. Their miracles authenticated their faith and message, and today your good works authenticate your faith and message. So what I'm trying to say to you, dear church, is don't go around trying to do miracles. 
Don't go around thinking like somehow you have to do miracles today in order to have a powerful ministry or to have a powerful message. Obviously, you know if you've been here for any amount of time, God can do any miracle that he wants to do at any time. Nobody is saying this morning from this pulpit that God doesn't still do miracles today. We're just simply saying this was a special time. This was a special event. And the whole point and purpose was to point back to the gospel and the way you play out that in your life is like, let me bear fruit. Let me live out my Christian testimony so that my works would also point others to the gospel. Let me ask you this morning, are you walking in the purity and in the power of the gospel? That's what this church was doing. It's a, it's a church that was pursuing purity. It's a, it's a powerful church, and we also see your next blank this morning. It was a church that was practicing unity. It's a church that's practicing unity. Back in Acts 5, at the end of verse 12, it says, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. All together in Solomon's portico. You may remember by now that Solomon's portico was on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. It faced the court of Gentiles. It was the location of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 after he healed the man who was lame from birth and he began walking and leaping and praising God. Jesus had also taught in this same area. So, a little section, a little area there in, in the temple area, the Solomon of Portico, uh, Solomon's portico, where they would gather. It, it had become the favorite gathering place for believers. It was like the the place where the church of Acts met on a daily basis for prayer and for worship and for the preaching of the apostles. They they loved to be together in unity. What a beautiful uh, picture here of this early church. They wanted to all be together. It kind of reminds me of of what happened earlier in Acts chapter 1 verse 14 when they're waiting together in the upper room. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You always see the believers together. They're gathered together. They're in prayer. They're in worship. They're serving one another. David declares in the Old Testament in Psalm 133, he declares how beautiful it is for us to dwell together in unity. In fact, turn to Psalm 133 just for a quick second. What a beautiful psalm uh, it is uh, to think about how blessed it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, written by David. It's only three verses. I just can't help but have you look at it this morning because it's such a powerful reminder of the point and purpose of unity. Here's what David writes, verse one. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good is it? Verse two. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. Now, this isn't some sloppy, messy kid sitting at the table who's got honey dripping all over his face, right? This is an anointing of the high priest who's been given the oil in order to signify that he's God's man to do God's work as a humble servant of Almighty God. And so he says, when we dwell together in unity, it's like that precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This Psalm, Psalm 133, is showing what unity looks like. Aaron was the high priest and could not minister until he was anointed with oil. The oil was poured out on his head as a special and sacred anointing. This picture is a picture of cleansing and a picture of rich spiritual blessing. 
But the anointing oil did not remain confined to the top of Aaron's head. It was soon running down Aaron's beard and then down upon his collar and upon his robes. And in the same way, Christian love and mercy spreads blessings to the entire body when we are unified. The drippings of unity ought to be all on us as part of the body of Christ. And then in verse 3 of Psalm 133, they're talking about the dew of Hermon. Unity is like the fresh morning dew of Hermon coming down from the mountains of Zion. God creates the cool, refreshing, refreshing dew that revitalizes everything. And in the same way, God creates the unity and the blessings that come from it. True unity comes down from above just like the water vapor comes down to form the dew. Mount Hermon was the tallest mountain peak in the Middle East and it was a source of perpetual freshness and coolness and in times of dryness, it gives nourishment. So does the unity among God's people, the church. Guys, we gotta stay unified. No matter what's going on in this world, no matter what's going on with the recall election on Tuesday, no matter what's going on with the mandated vaccinations, no matter what's going on with your personal view of choosing to get the vaccine or choosing not to get the vaccine, you and I have got to stay unified. And let me tell you, unification has nothing to do with vaccination. Can I just say that again? Unification has nothing to do with vaccination. We support all people who desire to get vaccinated. And we support all people who choose not to get vaccinated. It's really simple. We support you because we love you if you're in Christ. And we know it's a hard time. And we know it's difficult. Whatever side you're on, you have strong opinions about it. Don't let it divide you. Don't let it somehow creep in and destroy the unity of God's precious church. We're united by the blood of Christ. That's all we really care about. And so just make sure as we walk through life together, if you want to stay a powerful church, we got to be purified. we got to be pursuing that unity so that God can use us in the ways that he wants to. And the ways that he wants to primarily is preaching of the gospel and the sharing of Jesus Christ's resurrection, and the evangelization, evangelization of our community, and then putting people into opportunities for spiritual growth and discipleship. And so now that we've seen that the Church of Acts indeed was a powerful church, let's look at the second characteristic that we'll see here in verse 13. Number two, this was also a respected church. It was a respected church. Notice there is a fear, your next blank, a fear of judgment. There is a fear of judgment. None of the rest, verse 13 says, none of them dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. The rest here is a reference to everyone else. This would refer to everyone who was not a part of the church. This would be a reference to those who were not a part of the universal church and they were not a part of the local church in Acts. It was simply too much for them. No doubt they had heard about the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. They had heard about what had happened, how they had both dropped dead for lying to the Holy Spirit and they probably thought, I can't take that risk. For these unbelievers, the rest, those who are not yet purified and seeking unity in Christ, they're saying, I don't want to join that church. I can't take that risk because, you know what, I, I, I know that I probably have some issues in my life, and so I'm afraid if I go to that church, God might kill me, just like he killed Ananias and Sapphira. 
This was a Jewish audience. Surely, they would have remembered the stories of the Old Testament of Nadab and Abihu who were consumed in flames because they rebelliously offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Surely, they might have remembered even the story of Uzzah who died for reaching out to touch the ark of God. Or how about they would have heard maybe about how the earth opened up and swallowed all the sons of Korah because of their rebellion. They knew that God was serious about sin. And some of these people, the rest here, none of the rest of the Jews here in Acts 5 dared to join the church because they were afraid that they would be judged by God. They may have even thought, let me just get my life right first and then I'll come to God. You ever heard anybody say that, by the way? You're evangelizing, you're earnestly calling people to Christ, and maybe you're waxing eloquently about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and you're just now getting into how Christ died in your place so that you can be born again. And somewhere in there, they're just like, I'm not ready yet. And I've had people tell me, maybe you've had the same, I've had people tell me, I've got to get my life right first. I've got to get my, right, my life right first, and then I'll come to God. I don't know why they always say that, but so many people just, I got to get my life right first. And, and there's really two fundamental flaws with that statement. Number one, your next blank there, you can't clean yourself up. You can't get your life right first. You understand that, oh sinner? You can't be like, oh, okay, well first I'm going to kind of get my life right and then I'll come to God. You can't cleanse, you can't cleanse yourself. You can't change yourself on your own. You can't break one single sinful habit without the blood of Christ making you new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You've got to be in Christ to be a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But that's only if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you can't be made new. You can't do it on your own. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot save yourself. And so for someone to say, I gotta get my life cleaned up and then I'll come to God, it's flawed thinking. The second reason it's flawed, number one, you can't clean yourself up. Number two, you don't have to be afraid of God. You don't have to be afraid of God. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. When I say you don't have to be afraid of God, I'm saying God already took care of the means of your salvation. And the holy judge will judge all sin, but he also sent his son to be our sin offering. He sent his son to take your sin on his body on the tree. And Christ died for the sins of all of those who would repent and believe in him. And when you come to Christ and you come to God by faith in Christ, that's not a time to be afraid. That's a time to have a thankful heart. That's a time to be truly repentant where you say, I'm going to turn from my sin and I can't do it without God's help to help me now turn towards walking in obedience. And it's not the turning that saves you, but it's the mindset of trust and commitment and faith. And then you, the, the evidence of that is demonstrated in your walk. You begin to walk in new paths. You begin to be able to form new habits. You begin to have new desires because you've been given a new nature. And you no longer fear God in the like, I'm afraid of you, I have to run away from you way, but I fear you and I respect you and I'm in awe of you and I'm so thankful that you saved my soul and I'm now here to walk in obedience. These people in the book of Acts, they didn't wanna do that. They were, they were afraid. 
too much so. And they were also thinking somehow it might be noble for them to say, well, I'm just not ready yet. Listen, it's never noble to tell God, I'm just not ready yet. That is never a noble thing. There's never a time in, in your life where it's a good thing for you to say, you know what, I know God calls me to repent and believe in him, but I'm gonna tell him I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait until I grow up. I'm gonna wait until I sin a little more. That, that's really what they're saying. When they say, I gotta get my life cleaned up and then I'll come, they're really saying, I'm kind of enjoying my sin. I wanna kind of live in it just a little bit longer. I'm not so sure I really wanna part ways with my sin. And my sin could be intellectual sin, how you think, and you think that you have better philosophy than the Bible's truth. It could be moral sin. It, 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 could, be, it could be just the sin of pride. It could be the sin of, of I'm gonna just keep putting it off, the sin of procrastination or laziness, being a spiritual sluggard. Whatever it is, God's calling you out of that. And he's calling you to himself. And this is why, this is why we're here. And this is why the, 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 uh, the book of Acts is so incredible because we're seeing people be converted by the thousands. And they're coming to Christ and yet not everyone's coming. The rest of them were a little bit afraid. But you don't have to be afraid of God. In fact, your next blank there says that it's also a respected church. It's a respected church because they were doing a lot of good works. You know, it's interesting, again, for verse 13, the way they didn't dare join them, but the people, some of them had held them in high esteem, right? They, they held them in high regard. This means that they, they had some respect for them. They spoke highly of them. They respected this group of Christians and showed some degree of honor. Why? Because throughout the book of Acts, the apostles had been doing a lot of good things, and they had been healing the sick, and they'd been providing food and shelter for the poor. They'd been sacrificing their own possessions to care for the needs of others. And you can't help but to respect that. I, can, I know the church today is losing respect in the public square. I get that. But it doesn't mean we stop doing what we're doing. We keep loving, we keep giving, we keep serving. And somewhere in the conscience of an unbeliever, they have to say, those are good people. They're doing a good work. I don't agree with their theology and I don't agree with what they're doing, but somewhere I believe it's still true today that they would still recognize and hold true Christian character and some type of esteem. Maybe lesser than it was maybe 30 years ago, but it could still happen to some degree. Certainly he's saying it's happening here in the, in the first century. And this is why Jesus tells us this timeless truth of Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. When we obey Christ, we are producing good works, and when we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, others take notice. They may want to condemn you. They may want to shame you. They may completely disagree with you, but if your light is shining for Christ in what you do and in what you say and how you live your life for others, they will take notice. A testimony for Christ cannot be hidden. So we've got to be making sure that we're walking in that kind of way. We want to be a church that's respected both inside and out by believers and unbelievers. We don't want to be a church that that, that everybody agrees with because we're going to go with scripture, but we want them to agree with our behavior. To respect our church means that we would walk in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Church of Acts is doing. It's a powerful church. It is a respected church. Number three, this was a growing church. It was a growing church, verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Your next 
uh, blank there says the church of Acts was exploding. The church of Acts was exploding. I mean that in a good way. Growth, right? Explosion growth. All through the book of Acts, we see incredible growth. You could go back if you want, look at verse 41 of chapter 2, the end of the day of Pentecost. So those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Look at Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look at Acts chapter 4. Verse four, but many of those who had heard the word believed, the number of men came to about 5,000. Look at Acts six, verse one. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, look at Acts six, verse seven, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples was multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts chapter nine, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Please note that the church of Acts was growing. And in verse 14, it says, more than ever. More than ever, even though there had just been church discipline. Even though two people just died in church, probably in the same matter of days or weeks, or maybe even a, a few months, we understand a very quick time that the church is growing more than ever. That means that more than the 3,000 that were added at Pentecost, more than the 5,000 that were referred to in chapter four, they just kept increasing in number. Also, make sure that you know that in verse 14, it says it was believers, right? And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. We're not looking for a mega church of a whole bunch of people who come in by the thousands who don't have a clear testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, obviously, if they're coming to hear the gospel and be saved, I'm for that. But I'm just saying, we're not trying to grow numerically in, in the sense of just big numbers means everybody's a Christian. We're trying to grow with believers, those who are true believers. This says that these people were born again. These were not just people who were signing a membership card. They weren't just announcing their attendance by their very presence. They, they were not just large groups of regular attenders. That's not what it says. It says they're a group of believers. These were born again believers. These were the sons of God who had been adopted into the family. These were those who believed that Jesus was the Christ. They, they, they were new believers who believed that Jesus lived a sinless life. These were new believers who believed that Jesus died in their place. These were new believers who believed that on the third day that Jesus was raised from the grave. These were new believers who had repented and personally put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save them from their sins. It was a growing church with real Christians. And can I just say to you, your next blank, I believe that the church today is still growing. I believe that the church today is still growing Verse 14 says that there were multitudes of people that were being added to the Lord. The word multitudes means a large number. And notice, please, how it says they were being added to the Lord. You can't add yourself to the Lord. You must be added to the Lord. We're talking here about sovereign grace. We're talking here about the elect are added to God's family when they repent and believe in him. Notice that they're added by God in his sovereign power. He's the one who is opening up eyes and bringing people out of darkness and bringing people into the light, granting them the ability to repent. It's God who gives faith. It's God who first loved you. He causes you to be born again. He breathes new life into you. He delivers you from darkness into light. He said in Ephesians 2, 5 that he makes you alive together with Christ. 
It's God that's adding. We live in a church time today where we're told churches are shrinking. We're told that churches are closing down. We're told that there are less people who attend church on a Sunday morning today than they did back in the 90s. And I would say that's all true. I believe that. I believe churches are shrinking. And I believe that uh, there's, there's a lot less church attendance today than there was, say, 30 years ago. Does that mean there's less Christians? <laughs> Does that mean for one second somehow the elect of God are shrinking and getting smaller and smaller and smaller? You can't trust statistics as saying if church attendance is dropping, that doesn't mean true Christians are dropping, right? True Christians aren't dropping. Those who go out from us are not part of us, John 2.19 says, 1 John 2.19, right? If they go out from us, they were never part of the real church. And God is using these times to sift out the church and the chaff is being blown away. And the wheat remains, and you are the wheat. You are the fruit of God that he's calling to himself. And so when I say the church is still growing, I believe this is a time similar to the book of Acts. There are Christians being converted every day. There are children in our church who are coming to Christ. There are teenagers who are coming to Christ. There are adults who are coming to Christ. And it's not reflected in a church's numeric role. It's reflected in the hearts of God's people. Only God knows, ultimately, who is his, who he's drawn to himself. I'm just saying, don't walk around with your tail tucked between your legs, somehow that we as the Christian church are losing because our churches are shrinking and we don't have the influence over culture that we used to have. Set your eyes on Christ. He has put your feet on a rock and he's given you a firm place to stand. Sing praises to our God. Continue the work of evangelism like never before. And I believe that God is being glorified in what he's doing in the American church. And when I say the American church, I would, I would be referring to the true church, right? To those who are really walking all, all, throughout this whole mess, all the churches that are liberal, all the churches that are afraid, all the churches that are giving in to whatever, those are the ones that are shrinking. The churches that are fired up, the churches that are digging in, the churches that are opening up God's word, the churches that are proclaiming boldly from the pulpit about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, those churches are growing. Those churches are seeing the power of God, and that's what we want to see at our church, right? We want people to come here who are added by the grace of God, that they're added to this body so that we could together be growing and be glowing in the beauty and in the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to join me in that? Amen. Thanks for the encouragement, right? That's, that's who we are, right? That's who we are, and that's what God's called us to be. The Church of Acts was, number one, a powerful church. Number two, a respected church. Number three, it was a growing church. And number four, this was a healing church. This was a healing church, verses 15 and 16. Your next blank says, the new believers brought the sick to be healed. They brought the sick to be healed. In verse 15, here's what we read, so that even... Uh, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So we're seeing here that these new believers, the they there, verse 15, is a reference to the beginning uh, of, of, of uh, these new believers who are coming, and, and the, there in verse 14, who've just been added. And th this is what this means. Uh, these new believers were fired up. 
These people who were just added to the Lord are now saying, hey, we gotta come. we're now believers. We've seen God work miraculously. We've repented and believed in the resurrection, uh, the resurrected Christ. We're now fired up and we're bringing all of our friends from the highways and the byways and we're bringing them here to the temple area, to Solomon's portico, because we wanna see God do a great work because we are fired up. They knew that God was able to heal and they, they knew that this was gonna happen if they brought their friends, so they brought them on their cots and on their mats. You gotta love the faith of these new converts. They weren't cynical. They weren't living in doubt. They weren't, uh, they weren't uh, you know, uh, afraid. They were getting after it, doing what God wanted them to do. It kind of reminds me a little bit about what happened in Mark chapter two, when Jesus had returned to Capernaum and uh, many were gathered so much so there was no room in the house where he, there, he was staying and he was preaching from this house. And because it was so crowded, there was the four men, right? Who brought the paralytic up to the roof and they open a hole in the roof and they lower him down and Jesus healed this man and, and forgave his sins. And we talk about the faith of those four men who brought their friend to Christ and lowered him down at the feet of Jesus. And in the same way, these new believers here in Acts 5, they're enamored with what was going on and they, they wanted to at least have Peter's shadow fall on some of them. You say, well, what is that about? Well, nowhere does it say that Peter's shadow healed them. It just says they just wanted to bring it to the shadow and see what would happen. I, I really think that there's an inference here of simply saying, let's get as close as we can to where the action's at. I mean, if you're at a concert or you're going to a conference and you're really excited to be there, you might wanna come sit on the front row, right? Because you, you just wanna get in there and be where you're at. I like to get in the mosh pit at a Christian concert. Come on, I still got it. I can jump and keep jumping until my kids are worn out and I'll just keep jumping. Now, you know, I, I'm just saying, like you wanna get as close as you can because it's fun and it's exciting and who knows what God may do. So I don't think that there's like superstition, like, oh, let's just get in the shadow and now we can take relics and things like sometimes the Roman Catholic Church has been known to do over years and if you just do this, there's power. No, no, I don't think that's what's going on. I just think they're saying, hey, let's get close. Let's get close to where the action is. Remember the woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and she heard the reports about Jesus and how he was healing everybody and she just came up behind him and she just, she what? She just touched his garment. In Mark 5, 28, 29 says that she said, if I even can touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. This woman knew that she needed to be close to Jesus, to reach out and to touch him. And I think what's going on here in Acts 5 is these people, again, just wanted to bring them close to what was happening. This was a, it's a natural tendency to get close. And then in verse 16, uh, your next blank says, the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits were all healed. They were all healed. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Not only was this a gathering of the early church and the people of Jerusalem, but it was an opportunity to reach out to the surrounding towns as well. They brought their sick and this would have certainly included the blind and the deaf and the mute. And it would have no doubt included those with infectious diseases and deformities and leprosy. This would have also included those, as the text says, with unclean spirits who would have been demon possessed. And you know what happened? They were all healed. Not some of them, but all of them. This was immediate, complete, 
and permanent healing from their disease. The mighty wonders performed by the apostles were the fulfillment of God's promise, the Lord's promise, that you would do even greater works than these, as Jesus had said. Because it continued to spread and it continued to expand beyond what one physical presence was able or ordained that he would do. It's going to continue to spread. John 14, 13 through 14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so these apostles are praying in the name of Jesus. They are performing healing. Miracles are being done through them. And you have to be reminded again that when Jesus performed miracles during his ministry on earth, I I would say that there are at least three purposes in mind. This is not on your notes, but just go with me for a second. Three purposes in mind. Number one, to show compassion to meet human needs. When Jesus performed miracles of healing, he was definitely showing compassion to meet human needs. Number two, to present his credentials as the son of God. So when he's doing a healing, he's wanting to meet their need, And he's going to also present, I am the Messiah. I am doing miracles that were prophesied about me from the Old Testament, pointing to the fact I am the Son of God. Number three, to convey spiritual truth about salvation. To convey spiritual truth about salvation. For example, when Jesus fed the 5,000, the miracle met the crowd's physical need. They were hungry, so he met their physical need. It revealed Jesus as the Son of God. And it gave Jesus the opportunity to preach a sermon about how it was him who was the bread of life. The apostolic uh, miracles then followed a similar pattern. When Peter and John healed the crippled beggar of Acts 3, they met his need. But Peter used that miracle to preach a message of salvation and to prove to the people and to the council that he and John were indeed servants of the living Christ. And one of the qualifications for an apostle was that he had seen the living Christ. And since no one today can proclaim that they've seen the living Christ, there are no apostles, capital A, there are no apostles in the church today. The apostles and the prophets of the New Testament laid the foundation for the church and the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists to keep building on it. And if there are no apostles, capital A, in the church today, I would say that there are no signs of an apostle, as we found and read earlier from 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the signs and the wonders and the mighty works. I believe that those gifts, those miraculous gifts have ceased. That's, that's, that's a whole nother sermon. But I believe that in this passage, we're seeing them expand. And we're seeing that throughout the book of Acts. We're seeing that until the canon The scripture, that which is perfect, comes, and when that which is perfect comes, the imperfect then disappears. And at the same time, while I would say I'm a cessationist, I believe that God can heal anybody anytime that he wants, and he does so by his own power. And I don't believe that the gift of healing belongs to a certain person. I believe it belongs to God. And, and as, we, as we walk with God, we see that God does what he wants, however he wants, but we've got to be careful today because while there's a lot of faith healers out there, we understand that the word of God tests teachers not only by the miracles they perform, but also by the message that they give. So let's say you're here and you're like, well, Adam, I think the miracles continue. That's fine. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and argue all day with you. I would just say, be careful 
that whatever's being done is being done in accordance with scripture, and you have to test not only the miracle worker, you have to test the message of the miracle worker. Keep in mind that Satan is a counterfeiter and well able to deceive many who are unwary. Please remember that in the Old Testament, any prophet who performed miracles but at the same time led people away from God's word was considered a false prophet and was to be killed. Deuteronomy 13. The important thing is not the miracles, but it's whether or not his message is true to the word of God. Please note again that we understand that this whole passage is pointing us back to the preaching of the gospel. We get all wrapped up in the miracles and do they happen, do they not happen? I'm just saying, even if they do, they're supposed to point to Jesus. If they don't, then our, our, our lifestyle, our works are supposed to point to Jesus. And there are many of those in the church today who I'm just telling you who walk away and they're not healed. Just pointing out the difference, here it says they were all healed. And for every faith healing service, and I've been to many, if I had time, I could tell you many stories that there's people who come in and they go out the same way. It does not always happen that every healing service heals every person. And I'm just saying here, it did. And that brings us a lot of encouragement and a lot of reminders that these apostles were faithfully walking in obedience to what it is that God called them to do. And what it is that God called them to do was to preach the gospel in Jerusalem and in Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And the greatest miracle of all of this is about transforming a lost sinner to be a born-again saint. So really, that's my question for you this morning. Has that happened in your life? Have you been transformed? Have you been converted by the grace of God? Have you been added to Christ's church? If you're here this morning and you've never truly repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone, we'll have a few people at that back uh, area of the room that would love to talk to you this morning about how you could put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you could walk with him and you could, you could be transformed by him. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with any prayer need, prayer concern, any way that we can help you, please come and allow us to come alongside you this morning. Be reminded that your greatest need is not physical healing for your body today, but the spiritual healing of your soul. The miracle of salvation lasts forever and it costs the greatest price which was the blood of Jesus Christ who died for you and me. And if we've been changed by that blood, then our church ought to be making an impact. And we want to do it in his name and in his power. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for just always giving us more than we can handle on any given Sunday. We're overwhelmed with the grace that you show us through Christ. We're overwhelmed with the, the, the scripture reading and the prayers that have been prayed. We're overwhelmed with the worship and the opportunities to to. Um, to to sing out and to share our heart's affection on you. And we're overwhelmed with this passage. And we know that there may be a few varying views of this particular passage. And we pray that even our variations would cause us to dig deeper in your word, to pursue unity at all costs, and, and, uh, and that we would uh, uphold the gospel over all else. And we just be reminded that there's certainly guidelines and guardrails that we want to be aware of. And we know that you are a miracle working God. And so we just say that you would have your way in this church, and that you would meet needs according to your will, and that you would help us to be Christians that walk by faith 
and that we would see greater things each and every day because we keep looking to Christ, purify us as your church so that we might see your power like never before. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.